0: section seven of once a week by a a milne this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter three a baker's dozen part three disappointment my young friend bobby now in the early thirteens has been making his plan for the christmas holidays he communicated them to me in a letter from school I am going to write an opera in the holidays with a boy called Short, a very great and confident friend of mine here. I am doing the words, and Short is doing the music. We have already got the title. It is called Disappointment. Last week, on his return to town, he came to see me at my club, and when the waiter had brought in drinks and Bobby had refused a cigar— "'I lighted up and prepared to talk shop. "'His recent discovery that I write too "'leads him to treat me with more respect than formerly. "'Now then,' I said, "'tell me about it. "'How's it going on?' "'Ooh, I haven't done much yet,' said Bobby, "'but I've got the plot. "'Let's have it.' "'Bobby unfolded it rapidly. "'Well, you see,' There's a chap called Tommy, he's the hero, and he's just come back from Oxford, and he's awfully good-looking and decent and all that, and he's in love with Felicia, you see, and there's another chap called Reynolds, and you see, Felicia's really the same as Phyllis, who's going to marry Samuel, and that's the disappointment, because Tommy wants to marry her, you see. I see. That ought to be all right. You could almost get two operas out of that. Ooh, do you think so? Well, it depends how much Reynolds comes in. You didn't tell me what happened to him. Does he marry anybody? Ooh, no. He comes in because I want somebody to tell the audience about Tommy when Tommy isn't there. How well Bobby had caught the dramatic idea. I see. He ought to be very useful. You see, the first acts in a very grand restaurant, and Tommy comes in to have dinner— And he explains to Reynolds how he met Felicia on a boat, and she'd lost her umbrella, and he said, is this your umbrella, and it was, and they began to talk to each other, and then he was in love with her. And then he goes out, and then Reynolds tells the audience what an awfully decent chap Tommy is. Why does he go out? Well, you see, Reynolds couldn't tell everybody what an awfully decent chap Tommy is if Tommy was there. Of course he couldn't. And where's Felicia all this time? ooh she doesn't come on she's in the country with samuel you see the second act is a grand country wedding and samuel and phyllis are married and tommy's one of the guests and he's very unhappy but he tries not to show it and he shoots himself reynolds is there too i suppose ooh i don't know yet he'll have to be of course he'll be wanted to tell the audience how unhappy tommy is and how does it end i asked well you see when the wedding's over tommy sings a song about felicia and it ends up felicia 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 Felicia. getting higher every time short has to do that part of course but i've told him about it and then the curtain comes down i see and has short written any of the music yet "'He's got some of the notes. "'You see, I've only just got the plot, "'and I've written about two pages. "'I'm writing it in an exercise book.' "'A shadow passed suddenly across the author's brow. "'And the sickening thing,' he said, "'as he leant back in his chair and sipped his ginger beer, "'is that on the cover of it, "'I've spelt disappointment with two S's. "'The troubles of this literary life. "'Sickening,' I agreed.' If there is one form of theft utterly unforgivable, it is the theft by a writer of another writer's undeveloped ideas. Borrow the plot of Sir J. M. Barry's last play, and you do him no harm. You only write yourself down a plagiarist. But listen to the scenario of his next play, if he's kind enough even to read it to you, and write it up before he has time to develop it himself, and you do him a grievous wrong for you fix the charge of plagiarism on him. Surely, you say, no author could sink so low as this. And yet, when I got home, the plot of disappointment, with one S, so took hold of me that I did the unforgivable thing. I went to my desk and wrote the opera. I make no excuses for myself. I only point out that Bobby's opera, as performed at Covent Garden in Italian, with Short's music, conducted by Richter, is not likely to be belittled by anything that I may write here. I have only written in order that I may get the scenario, which had begun to haunt me, off my chest. Bobby, I know, will understand and forgive. Short, I have not yet had the pleasure of meeting, but I believe he is smaller than Bobby. Act I. Scene a grand restaurant enter tommy a very handsome man just back from oxford tommy sings felicia i love you by all the stars above you i swear you shall be mine and now i'm going to dine he sits down and orders a bottle of ginger-beer and some meringues waiter your dinner sir tommy thank you and would you ask mr reynolds to come in if you see him to the audience a week ago i was crossing the channel enter reynolds oh here you are reynolds i was just saying that a week ago i was crossing the channel when i saw the most beautiful girl i've ever seen who had lost her umbrella i said "'Excuse me, but is this your umbrella?' "'She said, "'Yes.' "'Reynolds, I sat down and fell in love with her. "'Her name was Felicia, "'and now I must go and see about something.' "'Exit. "'Reynolds, poor Tommy, "'an awfully decent chap if ever there was one, "'but he will never marry Felicia, "'because I happen to know her real name is Phyllis, "'and she's engaged to Samuel.' Recitative. She is engaged to Samuel. Poor Tommy. He does not know she's fond of Samuel. He will be disappointed when he knows. Curtain Act Two. Scene. A beautiful country wedding. Tommy in pew nearest door to Reynolds. Who's the bride? Reynolds. Phyllis. She's marrying Samuel. Enter bride, Tommy. Heavens, it's Felicia. Reynolds to audience. Poor Tommy, how disappointed he must be. Aloud, yes, Felicia and Phyllis are really the same girl. She's engaged to Samuel. Tommy, then I cannot marry her. Reynolds, no, Tommy sings good-bye felicia good-bye i'm awfully disappointed i am now in fact about to die felicia 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 shoots himself curtain that is how i see it but no doubt bobby and short when they really get to work we'll make something better of it. It is an engaging theme, but, of course, the title wants to be spelt properly. Among the Animals Jeremy was looking at a card which his wife had just passed across the table to him. Lady Bendish, at home, he read, Pets. "'Is this for us?' "'Of course,' said Mrs. Jeremy. "'Then I think pets is rather familiar. Mr. and Mrs. J. P. Smith would have been more correct.' "'Don't be silly, Jeremy. It means it's a pet party. You have to bring some sort of a pet with you. And there are prizes for the prettiest and the most intelligent and the most companionable and so on.' She looked at the fox-terrier, curled up in front of the fireplace. "'We could take rags, of course.' "'Or baby,' said Jeremy.' We'll enter her in the fat class. But when the day arrived, Jeremy had another idea. He came in from the garden with an important look on his face and joined his wife in the hall. Come on, he said, let's start. But where's Rags? Rags isn't coming. I'm taking Harreward instead. He opened his cigarette case and disclosed a small green animal. Harreward, he said. Why, Jeremy, cried his wife, it's "'Why, it's blight from the rose-tree.' "'It isn't just blight, dear. "'It's one particular blight. "'A blight. "'Heroard, the last of the blights.' "'He wandered round the hall. "'Where's the lead?' he asked. "'Jeremy, don't be absurd. "'My dear, I must have something to lead him up "'for his prize and so on. "'During the parade he can sit on my shoulder informally, "'but when we come to the prize-giving mr j p smith's blight harroward must be let on properly he pulled open a drawer oh here we are i'd better take the chain he might bite through the leather one they arrived a little late to find a lawn full of people and animals and one glance was sufficient to tell jeremy that in some of the classes at least his pet would have many dangerous rivals if there's a prize for the biggest he said to his wife my blight has practically lost it already adams has brought a cart-horse hullo adams he went on how are you don't come too close or Harroword may do your animal a mischief who's Harroword?" jeremy opened his cigarette-case "Harroword," he said not the wood-mine that's quite wild the blight he's much more domesticated But there are moments when he gets out of hand and becomes unmanageable he gave me the slip coming here and i had to chase him through the churchyard that's why we're late does he take meals with the family asked adams no no he has them alone in the garden you ought to see him having his bath george our gardener looks after him george gives him a special bath of soapy water every day Howard simply loves it george squirts on him Howard lies on his back and kicks his legs in the air. "'It's really quite pretty to watch them.' He nodded to Adams, and wandered through the crowd with Mrs. Jeremy. The collection of animals was remarkable. They varied in size, from Adams' cart-horse to Jeremy's blight, in playfulness from the vicar's kitten to Miss Trehearne's chrysalis and inability for performing tricks, from Major's poodle to Dr. Bunton's egg of the cabbage white. There ought to be a race for them all, said Mrs. Jeremy. A handicap, of course. Harroward is very fast over a short distance, said Jeremy. But he wants encouragement. If he were given ninety nine yards, two feet and eleven inches, in a hundred, and you were to stand in front of him with a William Allen Richardson, I think we might pull it off. But, of course, he's a bad starter. Hello, there's Miss Bendish. Miss Bendish, hurrying along, gave them a word as she went past. They're going to have the inspection directly, she said, and give the prizes. Is your animal quite ready? I should like to brush him up a bit, said Jeremy. Is there a tent or anywhere where I could prepare him? His eyebrows get so matted if he's left to himself for long. He took out a cigarette and lit it. There's a tent, but you'll have to hurry up. Oh well, it doesn't really matter, said Jeremy, as he walked along with her. Harrowward's natural beauty and agility will take him through. On the south lawn, the pets and their owners were assembling. Jeremy took the leash out of his pocket and opened his cigarette case. Good heavens, he said. "'Hereward has escaped. Quick, shut the gates!' He saw Adams near and hurried up to him. "'My blight has escaped,' he said breathlessly, holding up the now useless leash. He gnawed through the chain and got away. I'm afraid he may be running amuck among the guests. Supposing he were to leap upon Sir Thomas from behind and savage him. It's too terrible.' He moved anxiously on. "'Have you seen my blight?' he asked Mrs. Trehearn. He has escaped, and we are rather anxious. If he were to get the vicar down and begin to worry him, he murmured something about once getting the taste for blood and hurried off. The guests were assembled, and the judges walked down the line and inspected their different animals. They were almost at the end of it when Jeremy sprinted up and took his place by the last beast. It's all right, he panted to his wife. I've got him silly of me to mislay him but he's so confoundedly shy he held out his finger as the judges approached and introduced them to the small green pet perching on the knuckle a blight he said Hereward, the chief blight been in the family for years a dear old friend jeremy went home a proud man mr j p smith's blight Hereward had taken first prize in the all-round class. "'Yes,' he admitted to his wife at dinner, "'there is something on my mind.' He looked at the handsome cigarette-box on the table in front of him and sighed. "'What is it, dear? You enjoyed yourself this afternoon. You know you did. And Harward won you that beautiful cigarette-box. You ought to be proud.' "'That's the trouble. Harward didn't win it.' But they said, they read it out, and, yes, but they didn't know. It was really Elspeth who won. Elspeth? Yes, dear. Jeremy sighed again. When Heriward escaped and I went back for him, I didn't find him, as I, er, pretended. So I went to the rose garden and, and borrowed Elspeth. Fortunately, no one noticed it was a lady blight. They all took it for Heriward. But it was really Elspeth and belonged to Lady Bendish. He helped himself to a cigarette from the box. "'It's an interesting point,' he said. "'I shall go and confess to-morrow to Sir Thomas, and see what he thinks about it. If he wants the box back, well and good.' He refilled his glass. "'After all,' he said, "'the real blow is losing Harroward. Elspeth?' Elspeth is very dear to me, but she can never be quite the same. A TRAGEDY OF THE SEA William Bales, as nice a young man as ever wore a cummerbund on an esplanade, was in despair. For half an hour he and Miss Spratt had been sitting in silence on the pier, and it was still William's turn to say something. Miss Spratt's last remark had been oh mr Bales you do say things and william felt that his next observation must at all costs live up to the standard set for it three or four times he had opened his mouth to speak and then on second thoughts had rejected the intended utterance as unworthy at the end of half an hour his mind was still working fruitlessly He knew that the longer he waited, the more brilliant he would have to be, and he told himself that even Bernard Shaw, or one of those clever writing fellows, would have been hard put to it now. William was at odds with the world. He was a romantic young man who had once been told that he nearly looked like Lewis Waller when he frowned, and he had resolved that his holiday this year should be a very dashing affair indeed he had chosen the sea in the hopes that some old gentleman would fall off the pier and let himself be saved by and later on photographed with william bales who in a subsequent interview would modestly refuse to take any credit for the gallant rescue as his holiday had progressed he had felt the need for some such old gentleman more and more for only thus he realized Could he capture the heart of the wayward miss Spratt? but so far it had been a dull season in a whole fortnight nobody had gone out of his way to oblige william and to-morrow he must return to the city as unknown and as unloved as when he left it got to go back to-morrow he said at last as an impromptu it would have served but as the result of half an hour's earnest thought he felt that it did not do him justice "'As so you said before,' remarked Miss Spratt. "'Well, it's still true.' Talking about it won't help it,' said Miss Spratt. William sighed and looked round the pier. There was an old gentleman fishing at the end of it. His back turned invitingly to William. In half an hour he had caught one small fish, which he had had to return as under the age limit, and a bunch of seaweed.' William felt that there was a wasted life—a life, however, which a sudden kick and a heroic rescue by W. Bales might yet do something to justify. At the Paddington Baths a month ago, he had won a plate-diving competition, and though there is a difference between diving for plates and diving for old gentlemen, he was prepared to wave it. One kick, and then fame, and not only fame, but the admiration of Angelina Spratt. It was perhaps as well for the old gentleman, who was really quite worthy, and an hour later caught a full-sized whiting, that Miss Spratt spoke at this moment. "'Well, you're good company, I must say,' she observed to William. "'It's so hot,' said William. "'You can't say I asked to come here.' "'Let's go on the beach,' said William desperately. "'We can find a shady cave or something.' "'Fate was against him. There was to be no rescue that day.' "'I'm sure I'm agreeable,' said Miss Spratt. "'They walked in silence along the beach, and, rounding a corner of the cliffs, they came presently to a cave.' In earlier days, W. Bales could have done desperate deeds against smugglers there, with Miss Spratt looking on. Alas, for this unromantic age! It was now a place for picnics, and a crumpled sheet of newspaper on the sand showed that there had been one there that very afternoon. They sat in a corner of the cave, out of the sun, out of sight of the sea, and William prepared to renew his efforts as a conversationalist. In the hope of collecting a few ideas as to what the London clubs were talking about, he picked up the discarded newspaper and saw, with disgust, that it was the local herald. But just as he threw it down, a line in it caught his eye and remained in his mind. High tide today, 3.30. William's heart leapt. He looked at his watch. It was two-thirty. In one hour, the waves would be dashing remorselessly into the cave, would be leaping up the cliff. What time he and Miss spratt suppose they were caught by the tide. Meanwhile, the lady, despairing of entertainment, had removed her hat. "'Really,' she said, "'I'm that sleepy. I suppose the tide's safe, Mr. Bales?' "'It was William's chance.' ''Quite, quite safe,'' he said earnestly. ''It's going down hard.'' ''Well, then, I almost think,'' she closed her eyes. ''Wake me up when you've thought of something really funny, Mr. Bales.'' William was left alone with romance. He went out of the cave and looked round. The sea was still some way out, but it came up quickly on this coast. ''In an hour, in an hour!'' He scanned the cliffs, and saw the ledge whither he would drag her. She would cling to him, crying, calling him her rescuer. What should he do then? Should he leave her and swim for help, or should he scale the mighty cliff? He returned to the cave, gazing romantically at the sleeping Miss Spratt, conjured up the scene. It would go like this, he thought. Miss Spratt "'wakened by the spray dashing over her face. "'Oh, Mr. Bales, we're cut off by the tide. "'Save me!' "'W. Bales, lightly. "'Tut, tut, there's no danger. "'It's nothing. "'Aside, great heaven's death stares us in the face.' "'Miss Spratt, throwing her arms around his neck. "'William, save me. "'I cannot swim.' "'W. Bales, with Waller face.' "'Trust me, Angelina, I will fight my way round yon point, and obtain help.' "'Aside. An Englishman can only die once.' Miss Spratt "'Don't leave me!' W. Bales "'Fear not, sweetheart. See, there is a ledge where you will be beyond the reach of the hungry tide. I will carry you thither in my arms, and will then—' At this point in his daydream, William took another look at the sleeping Miss Spratt— felt his biceps doubtfully, and went on. W. Bales. I will help you to climb thither, and will then swim for help. Miss Spratt. My hero! Again and again William reviewed the scene to himself. It was perfect. His photograph would be in the papers. Miss Spratt would worship him. He would be a hero in his city office— The actual danger was slight, for at the worst she could shelter in the far end of the cave, but he would not let her know this. He would do the thing heroically, drag her to the ledge on the cliff, and then swim round the point to obtain help. The thought struck him that he could conduct the scene better in his shirt sleeves. He removed his coat and then went out of the cave to reconnoiter the ledge. Miss Spratt awoke with a start and looked at her watch. It was four-fifteen. The cave was empty, save for a crumpled page of newspaper. She glanced at this idly and saw that it was the local Herald, eight days old. Far away on the horizon, William Bales was throwing stones bitterly at the still-retreating sea. Old Friends "'It was very nice of you to invite me to give you lunch,' I said. "'And if only the waiter would bring the toast, I should be perfectly happy. I can't say more.' "'Why not?' said Miss Middleton, looking up. "'Oh, I see.' "'And now,' I said, when I had finished my business with a sardine, "'tell me all about it. I know something serious must have brought you up to London. What is it? Have you run away from home?' "'Miss Middleton nodded. "'Sir Henry,' she added dramatically, "'waits for me in his yacht at Dover. "'My parents would not hear of the marriage "'and immured me in the spare room. "'They tried to turn me against my love "'and told wicked stories about him, "'vowing that he smoked five cigarettes in a day. "'Er, would you pass the pepper, please?' "'Go on,' I begged. "'Never mind the pepper.' "'But, of course, I really came to see you,' said Miss Middleton briskly. "'I want you to do something for me.' "'I knew it.' "'Oh, do say you'd love to.' I drained my glass and felt very brave. "'I'd love to,' I said doubtfully. "'At least, if I were sure that—' And I lowered my voice. "'Look here, have I got to write to anybody?'
1: "'No,'
0: said Miss Middleton.' Let me know the worst. Have I, er, have I got to give advice to anybody? No. There was one other point that had to be settled. I leant across the table anxiously. Have I got to ring anybody up on the telephone? I asked, in a hoarse whisper. Oh, nothing like that at all, said Miss Middleton. Dash it, I cried. Then of course I'll do anything for you. What is it? Somebody you want killed? I could kill a mare to-day. Miss Milton was silent for a moment, while allowing herself to be helped to fish. When the waiters had moved away, "'We are having a jumble sale,' she announced. I shook my head at her. "'Your life,' I said, "'is one constant round of gaiety.' "'And I thought, as I was coming to London, I'd mention it to you, "'because you're always saying you don't know what to do with your old things.' "'I'm not always saying it. I may have mentioned it once or twice when the conversation was flagging. Well, I mention it now, and then I'll mention my jumble sale.' I thought it over for a moment. "'It will mean brown paper and string,' I said hopelessly, "'and I don't know where to get them. I'll buy some after lunch for you. You shall hold my hand while I buy it.' "'and then I should have to post it, "'and I'm rotten at posting things. "'But you needn't post it, "'because you can meet me at the station with it, "'and I'll take it home.' "'I don't think it's quite etiquette "'for a young girl to travel alone "'with a big brown paper parcel. "'What would Mrs. Middleton say if she knew?' "'Mother?' cried Miss Middleton. "'But of course it's her idea. "'You didn't think it was mine,' "'she said reproachfully.' The shock of it unnerved me for a moment. Of course, I see now that it is Mrs. Middleton's jumble sale entirely. I sighed and helped myself to salt. How do I begin? You drive me to my dressmaker and leave me there and go on to your rooms. Then you collect a few really old things that you don't want and tie them up and meet me at the 440. I'm afraid, she said frankly, It is a rotten way of spending an afternoon, but I promised Mother. "'I'll do it,' I said. My parcel and I arrived promptly to time. Miss Middleton didn't. "'Don't say I've caught the wrong train,' she said breathlessly, when at last she appeared. "'It does go at four-forty, doesn't it?' "'It does,' I said, and it did. "'Then my watch must be slow.' "'Send it to the jumble sale,' I advised. "'Look here. "'We've a long time to wait for the next train. "'Let's undress my parcel in the waiting-room, "'and I'll point out the really unique things that want watching. "'Some are absolutely unique.' "'It was an odd collection of very dear friends, "'Miss Middleton's final reminder, "'having been that nothing was too old for a jumble sale. "'Lot one,' I said, A photograph of my house cricket, eleven, framed in oak. Very interesting. The lad on the extreme right is now a clergyman. Oh, which is you? said Miss Middleton eagerly. I was too much wrapped up in my parcel to answer. Lot two, I went on, a pink and white football shirt. Would work up into a dressy blouse for adult or smart overcoat for child. "'Lot three. A knitted waistcoat. Could be used as a bath-mat. "'Lot four. Pair of bedroom slippers in holes. "'This bit is the slipper. The rest is the hole. "'Lot five. Now this is something really good. "'Truthful Jane. My first prize at my kindergarten. "'Mother is in luck. It's just the sort of things she wants,' said Miss Middleton her taste is excellent lot six a pair of old grey flannel trousers lot seven lot seven forward where are you i began to look through the things again er i'm afraid lot seven is already gone what about lot eight there doesn't seem to be a lot eight either it's very funny i'm sure i started with more than this some of the things must have eaten each other on the way oh but this is heaps can you really spare them all i should feel honoured if mrs middleton would accept them i said with a bow don't forget to tell her that in the photograph the lad on the extreme right i picked up the photograph and examined it more carefully i say i look rather jolly don't you think i wonder if i have another copy of this anywhere i gazed at it wistfully that was my first year for the house, you know.' "'Don't give it away,' said Miss Middleton suddenly. "'Keep it.' "'Shall I? I don't want to deprive—' "'Well, I think I will, if you don't mind.' My eyes wandered to the shirt. "'I've had some fun in that, in my time,' I said thoughtfully. "'The first time I wore it—' "'You really oughtn't to give away your old collars, you know.' "'Oh, but if Mrs. Middleton—' I began doubtfully, "'at least don't you—what? "'Oh, all right, perhaps I won't.' I put the shirt on one side with the photograph and picked up the dear old comfy bedroom slippers. I considered them for a minute and then sighed deeply. As I looked up, I caught Miss Middleton's eye. I think she had been smiling.' "'About the slippers?' she said gravely. "'Good-bye,' I said to Miss Middleton. "'It's been jolly to see you.' I grasped my parcel firmly as the train began to move. "'I'm always glad to help Mrs. Middleton, "'and if ever I can do so again, be sure to let me know.' "'I will,' said Miss Middleton. "'The train went out of the station.' and my parcel and I looked about for a cab. End of Section 7